Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This was the umpteenth meeting that hadn't gone well. And I just kind of mumbled as I entered the house and went into the bedroom and started to play spider solitaire and just sort of mindlessly flipping cards. And my wife came in and said, what's, you know, what's wrong? And I said to her, I said, I just don't think I'm cut out for this. I just don't think I'm, I'm called to do this. And she said, nope, you're wrong. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Calling. My name is Richard Clark. I am the online managing editor for Christianity Today. Today on the podcast, I am talking to Thabiti Anyabwile, the pastor of Anacosta River Church in Washington, D.C., and one of the founders of The Front Porch. I've actually been a pretty big fan of Thabiti's for a while. I remember back when all of the Ferguson-related stuff was happening, and he just seemed to be like a really, really reasoned but prophetic voice into some of the more complicated issues that evangelicalism sort of started to deal with at the time. And in my mind, he's been one of the most important voices in the church in the last few years as we've dealt with issues related to race and uh, general ministry. I thought this interview was really good because it goes a little deeper into his pastoral ministry than I've heard before. And so I think you'll enjoy hearing about that. He talks about his conversion from Islam and sort of his burden in ministry and just sort of the how hard it is sometimes to persevere. I was relating to that a lot. And in general, his, his philosophy about church and how it should be centered sort of in location and community. You may have uh, heard of the Thabiti from The Front Porch, uh, which is his sort of online outlet that he's co-founded or the Gospel Coalition where he's He's written books like The Faithful Preacher and Captivated, and he's also written for the Washington Post, and he's written for Christianity Today. Um, and he's appeared, not only appeared in The Atlantic, but he has uh, he's taken place in what I thought was a pretty fascinating discussion with Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, it, they had a discussion about the role of hope in mass incarceration and more generally in racial conversation. It was a really fascinating discussion because Ta-Nehisi Coates is sort of like known for seeing hope as a suspect idea. And Thabiti did a great job of arguing for hope as sort of a fundamental truth of our reality. If you like this conversation, you should definitely check out the Just Gospel Conference. That's um, Thabiti is heading that up or one of the people heading that up. You can see more information at thefrontports.org slash just-gospel. It's March 16th through 18th. Christianity Today magazine offers redemptive yet honest coverage of the people, events, ideas shaping the culture and the church. We have an opportunity for you to become a subscriber. You'll get 10 award-winning issues, tablet and PDF versions of the issues, full web access, online archives dating back to 1956. 
Um, we set up, see, we, we've actually set up a special page for those who are listeners of this podcast where you can get a discount and subscription plus a bonus download that's created especially for you, our podcast listeners. You can only get that deal at orderct.com slash the calling. That's orderct.com slash the calling. Just head over there and subscribe. You'll be supporting thoughtful, essential journalism and helping us continue to produce episodes of The Calling every week. Special thanks to Legacy Conference, which is where I interviewed Thabiti. They they were great in uh, connecting us and also giving us some space to interview in. I would definitely check out that conference. It's one of my favorites, if you haven't. Here's my interview with Thabiti Anyabwile. I've often seen all of my friends having sports conversations with you. Oh, right. And I get really jealous because I don't care. But I wanted to (laughs) try and see if I could pretend to have a sports conversation Uh, with me. Sounds good. So ask me a question about sports and I'll answer. Like, ask me a conversational question about sports. So what do you think about uh, Kevin Durant going from Oklahoma City to the uh, Golden State Warriors? I can do this one. Okay. So that... I think, you know, when someone is called to do something, they want to do it well, and they want to succeed at it. So I don't blame a guy for trying to succeed. So yeah. so you, you don't mind the fact that they're stacking the team in an almost invincible way? That's part of the game. Is that part of the game? That's part of the game. You got you to gotta, you gotta try and do the... Do the team the right okay. way. And so does lo- does loyalty not matter? I mean, he's been in Oklahoma for like eight or nine years. I don't see loyal in- loyalty in the rule book. So loyalty is not in the rule book. No. Well, does it, does it hurt the game when players jump around that way for basically money and titles as opposed to an older era where it seemed at least more people stayed with a team? Out of loyalty. And, and in part, it's also contractual obligations. <laughs> yeah. but, um, so back then it was built in the rule book a little bit. Well, way. yeah, this is before free agency. This is before, you know, players had much more uh, sort of control of their own careers. That's the negative side of that era. Yeah. But the positive side is, you know, you 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 had a team and you knew its players and um, and they were part of the city. And, and it was uh, kind of loyalty between fan and team. Do you it's, think that hurts that? Well, it's funny how that mirrors where we are now in terms of like there's a very individualistic approach to everything in general. And so everyone's kind of like identity. It's their their personal identity versus the collective identity. Last question, I guess. You don't think it's a kind of um, a character flaw or a lack of competitiveness or something for the guy to be one game away from beating <laughs> Golden State to go to yeah. the finals. Yeah. And then, and presumably, all you need is one or two other pieces, or you just need the ball right. to bounce a different way in one game. That's true. He goes from that. To sort of going to join the team, the rivals that won that won them. You, you, you don't I see that as just, problematic. And in retrospect, that seems like a bad move. Okay, because the there's um there's a question of trajectories. Like there, one team's going up, and the other team's probably just peaked. I would assume, unless like he is really good, which probably he is. <laughs> anyway, I feel like I nailed that. You nailed it. You nailed it. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell them to listen to this podcast. Um, I'm here with Thabiti Anyabwile. You are the pastor of, t- tell me the name of your church. Anacostia River Church in uh, Southeast Washington, D.C. And you have three kids? I do. Yeah. One wife. Yeah. As, as is the, way the biblical be. requirement. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, you've, you, so you just, you went from the Cayman Islands to there. We always start the podcast with one question. Uh, how would you define your calling? 
Yeah, I actually think um, I, we have. I have multiple callings. Uh, I'm first of all called to worship God as uh, as a Christian, as one redeemed by uh, faith in the in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so, my overarching primary calling is to walk worthy of the calling that we've received in Christ. Kind of beneath that, I'm also a husband. Uh, and so uh, I'm defined in part by my marriage to Christy and all I'm called to do to give myself up for her the way Christ has given himself for the church. And then I'm also a dad. I'm called to raise my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and to provide for them. And then fourthly, and it is in this order, uh, fourthly, I'm a pastor. And so it's a great privilege to preach God's word and to serve his people and to uh, try not to mess up what God has made perfect in terms of his word. I laughed when you said it is in that order because um, your wife, I had her on the podcast, and I assume it, this might go out before or after. I don't know the order we're putting these out, but um, I asked her what her calling was. She basically said all the same things, but like with her stuff. And in that order, I said, would you say in that order? And I said, this is not a, tra- a trap. <laughs> would your husband say that in that order? And she said, yeah, I think he would. Mm-hmm. And then you guys didn't talk about it or anything. I no. just saw you. You literally came in as she was leaving. If you and marry, you said that in that order. That was the, impressive. If you marry long enough, you share a brain. <laughs> <laughs> that is very impressive. We'll see how much of that is, uh, how, much, how much more is the same. But. All right. So, okay, so your your fourth calling, I think, is the most unique, which is in that not all Christians or dads or moms are called to it, so, which is the pastorate. Um, how, what was the time when you realized you want, you were called to the pastorate? Yeah, wow, that's going back some years ago now, um, maybe maybe 15 years or so ago. Um, was a relatively young Christian, been a Christian for a couple of years. The Lord, in His grace, gave my wife and I just a voracious appetite for the Scripture. And uh, we were bent toward books anyway and bent toward teaching. In fact, uh at the point the Lord saved me, I thought that I was the, was going to finish my PhD and try and teach at a research one institution in psychology. That had been kind of the, the trajectory and the goal. And uh, when the Lord saved me, he just gave me this appetite to then teach his word to his people. And because of some uh, bad experiences uh, or bad view on the church, particularly televangelists, I didn't want to be associated with the ministry. And so I came to the ministry kind of kicking and screaming. And uh, it was just really being shut up with the Lord and his word and receiving lots of affirmation from his people uh, about gifting and teaching that in time, he just he gave me a love for the church. And when he gave me a love for the church, then a desire to pastor was almost inescapable. What inspired the love for the church? Yeah, was um, reading a couple of books at the time. One was called The Coming Evangelical Crisis. The other was called The Compromised Church, uh, both edited by the same guy. And In God's Providence had chapters in it that were contributed by a lot of guys who are now my friends, who I didn't know from Adam uh, at the time. But what those, what those chapters all featured was a high view of the church, and a high view of the centrality of a local church in Christian life and discipleship. And I had, as a relatively young Christian, I had not thought through what the church is or its centrality or anything of that sort. And as I said, I had sort of imbibed the kind of low view of the church based on some bad examples I'd seen. Mm -hmm. And so reading through those books over the course of a month or so, um, the Lord just kind of flipped that on his head. 
And all of a sudden, I saw this kind of Ephesians 3 beauty uh, that the Lord is displaying his manifold wisdom to the universe in, in the local church and began to see the beauty of union with Christ and being the body of Christ. And, and when, that, when those affections change, as I said, then it, then it, was, it was a matter of how, how long could I not, how long could I stay outside the ministry became the challenge. It's funny because for me, I had an experience that inspired me to love the church more. For you, it seems like you had some experiences that led you to not love the church, and then eventually you read a book, and that convinced you to love the church. Mm -hmm. So it was just a knowledge thing for you. Well, no, it wasn't merely a knowledge thing. By that point, too, we were also involved in a church plant in Raleigh, North Carolina, a little church called Church on the Rock. And it was also then tasting and seeing for the first time just a wonderful ministry of, of exposition in the pulpit. And and the richness of Christian fellowship. I should back up and say, you know, I had been a Muslim for a number of years prior to my conversion. And the sort of religious worship life of Islam is really quite different from, from Christianity. And one of the ways it's really quite different is, is just the emphasis on Christian love and community and fellowship. And when you find that and, and get that for the first time, for me at least it was an awakening. I was tasting a, a new fruit and hadn't realized how 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 the other fruit had been so devoid of sweetness. And so imagine tasting sweetness for the first time, you know, biting into your first orange and the flavor bursts into your mouth. Well, My was... son just had his first cake. Oh, uh, is that right? He cried. He didn't like it. Oh, bless his oh, heart. Bless his heart. You didn't have enough icing on it. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was too much. He was like freaked out by the messiness. Oh, well, there you go. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> sorry, I don't know uh, why I said that. But, but no, the, the church is messy too. So yeah, you got you to learn to taste oh, the sweetness in the midst of it's the messiness. Deep man. metaphor. Oh, uh, it is. <laughs> and so it was that. It was that. It was the combination of experiencing this robust ministry of the word and a robust fellowship of God's people. And then in God's providence, thinking through what I was experiencing in terms of the doctrine of the church and its centrality. Those things together were the sort of flip for me. What was the moment that you became convinced of your calling to the pastorate? Yeah, as I said, I, I had began to get in God's providence uh, invitations to speak at churches, which was a little bit bizarre to me because I, I hadn't been in the ministry. I wasn't, I wasn't a pastor. I had done a lot of speaking, public speaking, on, the, on sort of African-American history and culture, more, more sort of academic lectures. Um, but now I'm getting these, these new kinds of invitations. And I, and I would go and speak and, and try my best at preaching a sermon. And, you know, people would just kind of come to me and say, so I, I think you're called. I think you got a call. And I, I would push back. And I did for a couple of years. And finally, I sat down with the Bible and said, let me think through calling. And, and what does the Bible say about this? And how should I be thinking about this? And praying and filling this pool and this tub. And the moment happened was in my study in my home. My wife and I, our first home, I had a study. And I'm reading the scriptures. And I just, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm, I had to sort of Accept the fact that that's what the Lord was doing. He was calling me. And I, I walk out of my study, and I'm, I meet the, my wife at the steps just outside of my study. And I said, I got to tell you something. And uh, and she says, okay. She sits down on the steps, and, and she said, what's up? And I said, um, I think the Lord is calling me to the ministry. And she burst out laughing. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe I missed that. I don't, you know, I just, you know, I said, well, why are you laughing? And she says, everybody knows that. We've been waiting on you. <laughs> and uh, at that moment, with the Lord kind of having settled that in my heart and my wife affirming that, as I said, at that point, I just began to say, here, here I am, Lord, uh, use me. Why is that such a common story? I feel like that happens a lot. Yeah. The wife knows before the husband. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's just it's just a, a, a sort of truism that other people sometimes see you better than you see yourself. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, and so when people are watching you and observing you, and and in this case, when you're talking about gifting and ministry, when people are already experiencing the fruit of the Lord's work. That sometimes occurs to them long before it occurs to you. And uh, and so this is why when it comes to calling, it's important to remember that historically, Christians have understood that there are two aspects to the calling. There, there is that internal subjective sense of desire, but that that's only partial. The other part that's critical is the affirmation of, of the leadership in the congregation, mm-hmm. uh, that calling is meant to be recognized by the church, mm, not yeah. just by the individual. That's important because... I feel like when I felt called to ministry, quote unquote, because I later felt uncalled to ministry, whatever that <laughs> meant, um, or at least full-time church ministry, I remember the church was just like, okay, you mm, know? Mm. It was like, I mean, I had some interaction with my, with my youth pastor, but sort of the typical way it was done, and certainly like, uh, because every, like the the college I went to at the time, like required a sign letter from your church and you, most ch- most people I knew just like told their church they were called and they wanted to go to this thing and they needed a sign letter and so then they would vote on it and there you were yeah you were there yeah would I, you know we we do need churches to be more careful because there are a lot of people who maybe have a calling but aren't ready in some ways yeah. who, who need a little bit more baking uh, to be prepared, or there are folks who have a sense, a general sense of calling to do something, but they need to discover where their gifts are and what their interests are. And and if I think we live in a world where people experience callings from the Lord, and they they their their view of ministry and the possibility of ministries is pretty narrow. They're only thinking of preaching, right? When in fact there are a gazillion ways to serve the Lord. All of them are properly called callings. And I think part of what churches ought to do and leaders ought to do is to help people think through, you know, from, okay, I think I'm, I feel called to think that through in terms of character and competence and theological conviction, all the way to a more particular calling. And I think, you know, we'd have, I think, we'd have fewer sort of uh, stories of burning out and flaming out. Uh, pray and trust we'd have fewer stories of moral failure. Mm-hmm. And I pray we'd have fewer stories of, of people sort of embarking on the wrong trail. And so I just think churches need to be careful and shepherd people through their callings. Was there ever a time in your life where you doubted that you were called to pastor? Yeah, I experienced a particular season of difficulty in my first pastor in the Cayman Islands. And I remember being so discouraged that I went home that night. It was a late, we had late meetings. I went home that night. The meetings hadn't gone well. And uh, this was the umpteenth meeting that hadn't gone well. And I uh, just kind of mumbled as I entered the house and went into the bedroom and started to play spider solitaire and just sort of mindlessly flipping cards. And my wife came in and said, what's, you know, what's wrong? And I said to her, I said, I just don't think I'm cut out for this. I just don't think I'm I'm called to do this. And, uh, you know, I should go back to the policy world, the think tank world. And, How long and ago was work. this? Uh, this would be going on probably seven or eight years ago now. And she listened as she, as a good wife does. And and, uh, and uh, I knew I was in trouble. I looked over my shoulder and caught her out the corner of my eye. And she's listening with her head kind of tilted. And she's just kind of stroking her chin. And I just thought, oh, Lord, she's stroking her chin. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I kind of mustered up up enough courage to say, well, what do you think? And she says, nope, you're wrong. You know, you just need to to lead and you just need to teach. And it's hard right now. 
and you just need to keep going. And and my response to her was really quite profound. Uh, I I sort of turned back to Spider Solitaire and said, I don't want to talk no more. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> and so, but she was absolutely right. She was spot spot on. What and, was it uh, that triggered that? Like, I mean, I know you had long meetings and they didn't go well, but there must have been like a deeper yeah, thing that caused you to really doubt that. Yeah, it it was it was the inability to lead uh, certain persons through the conflict that we were having as leaders. It, it was a, it was a, a really trying period in my own soul because I. A number of things happened in that period. One was I I was discovering, in fact, that there were a lot of things as a leader that I used to do and knew how to do that I had stopped doing. And I needed to sort of go back and and get some of that. Like what? Um, Well, just casting vision, uh, spending time with persons individually, developing them, uh, correcting people and and addressing conflict, you know, more directly and and redemptively. Um, And so there was just a number of things that, that just should be the habit of leadership that because I had been sort of in an associate role for a number of years and didn't have to do that as the primary guy, I had kind of put in the dock, you know, and I needed to go back and get it. And then the other thing was just um, discovering along with that, that in some ways I had become passive in my approach to friendships. And here for the first time in my life, I was having difficulty with friendships and developing friendships. It had always come easily for me. And uh, and so in the mix of the leadership issues and the friendship issues, which was making it all feel very personal and was just sort of coming home in, in toxic ways in my own soul, I, I was interpreting that as uh, you shouldn't be doing this, which, which reveals a, a, a theological problem at the time in my thinking about calling. I think many people think calling, if you're called to it, it should be easy. But there are many things the Lord calls us to that aren't easy at all. Uh, they're quite difficult. Pastoring is one of them. And um, and I needed I needed my wife to just sort of look at me and say, okay, pity party's over. Um, you need you need to you need to buck up, chin up, and uh, you need to carry on, and uh, and you need to do what the Lord's called you to do, and uh, and you need to experience this as sanctifying and growth inducing. That conversation that night probably kept me from calling some old resources and and moving back to uh, secular employment. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. How did you deal with the friendship issue? Because I know that can be tough for pastors, is yeah. to build friendships where you can trust people. Yeah. I don't know that uh, I ever solved um, some of those friendship issues, but I did begin to pray, Lord, send me a friend. And he answered that prayer. He, he sent he sent a couple of men who proved themselves uh, to be friends. And with the others, you know, I tried. I tried to cultivate the friendships. I tried to right things that were wrong. Uh, we tried to move forward in productive ways. The Lord gave us a lot of grace in that. It required recognizing on my part 
that not every disagreement was opposition, that, that godly men could disagree about this or that kind of secondary matter. And it shouldn't be read as um, someone opposing you uh, in that way. So there, that's, there's a bit of perspective change and maturing that had to happen in that. Uh, and then in, in a couple of cases, I just had to force some change as a leader. I had to, in one case, uh, help a man get off of the leadership of, of the of the elder team, and I had to help the other guys see why that was necessary. Uh, and so we just had to begin to address head-on some things that they wouldn't go away if we ignored them, and they would sink the leadership if we ignored them. And so that mix of working on relationships, addressing problems, growing up a bit, going back and, and retooling, uh, is a mix of things the Lord helped with that. And you said that was seven or so, seven or, yeah, seven or seven, eight, eight years. Eight. Or so, yeah. so, and then you stayed another like five years right. after that. That's right. Yeah. So you definitely, you definitely like kind of face down those issues mm. in a way that, as opposed to just like moving on to DC where it's easier. Yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, I think a pastor can be tempted to think that it's going, the grass is greener somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's not true. So you've not seen a pastor who hadn't had his challenges, hadn't had his problems, uh, some internally and some relationally. And I do praise God for the grace he gave uh, to sort of persevere through. Uh, some of those things and to work through some of those things and to five years later be healthier uh, as as a team and as a church than we were in those first couple of years where all these things were surfacing. And so the, the Lord was good in that. And, and that's, for me, that's important. Uh, leadership is about loyalty. Leadership is about perseverance. You don't cut and run. There, there are legitimate times where you have to decide, I've gone as far as I can go in a situation. And that was the case for me five years later. But we should not be sort of running from hard things uh, as Christian leaders, particularly in view of who we're following. You know, we can't follow Christ and, and look for ease. It just Those two things don't go together. What have you come to value the most about local church ministry in the time that you've been doing it? Mm, the people. Yeah, that um, the people of a local church, they're not projects, they're people. Um, we're not there to fix them. We're, as pastors or leaders, it's not, the, it's not the case where we've arrived and they're unenlightened. Uh, what is the case is that they're family to the extent that God allows us to see our congregations not as organizations we're building, but as families we're growing. Um, then that just becomes really sweet. And so I've had the privilege now of being a part of what I would regard as four, four good churches, four solid, healthy churches. They had periods of unhealth, or they, they were really different churches. They grew in different ways. But to have seen now in from different perches that the grace of God at work in the people of God making us family, uh, I treasure that now above above most other aspects of the ministry. What would you say has been the biggest struggle? My own heart. My own heart. Uh, impatience. The constant fight against pride. The temptations to self-righteousness. Um, the the desire for ease and comfort and why don't people just comply? Mm-hmm. Um, and and all those things are, are problems in my own heart. They're not problems in the people. It's not problems in the neighborhood or the context. But my own sanctification is is the greatest challenge. And you know, so Robert Murray McShane has, you know, he says it slightly differently that that his people have no greater need than his holiness. I hear that. That that rings in my heart is true. You've written a book, Reviving the Black Church, and I assume the church you're planting now is, is 
primarily a black church? Predominantly African-American. We're serving in Southeast D.C., which is about 92, 94% African-American. So okay. trying to reach a predominantly African-American context. And, uh, of course, the church that I came to faith in, African Methodist Episcopal Church, is a historically black denomination. And the churches that we were involved in in North Carolina before we moved to D.C. were all predominantly African-American congregations. So that's that's my longer history and, and background. And uh, we're returning to that context after uh, about 10 years or so in the Caribbean, uh, which was an incredibly diverse situation, 110 nationalities in that island nation, 35 nationalities in our church. So after about 10 years there, uh, coming back to predominantly African-American context. Do you, want, do you want your current church to eventually be diverse? I want that church to be what the Lord makes it. Yeah. Right. So yeah. we we faced this question when we were planting a church, right? You know, because there were lots of people who were wanting to be a part of the plant who weren't African American and who were sensitive to the needs of the community enough to ask, would I be a hindrance or a help to the gospel <laughs> if I came? Right. right. And I loved the question for its humility. And my response to that was, well, you do what the Lord calls you to do. If if the Lord is burdening you to come help us plant this church, then that's what you're supposed to do. And you're not to think that you know, skin color is a hindrance to the gospel. And and the way I've, I've sort of tried to encourage people is just to say this, listen, there are people in the community that I would have easy spiritual conversations with because I'm African-American. They will assume a commonality, a familiarity, and so on. And that'll be an advantage. There are people in the African-American community who the moment they learn that I'm a pastor, they got all the stereotypes that flood their minds right. with whom I cannot have an effective conversation. Those Many of those people will be people who will see you live in our neighborhood and we'll ask you why you live in our neighborhood when you could live in Northwest D.C. or on Capitol Hill. And if your answer is because of Jesus and the gospel, you're going to have a conversation and you're going to be able to break some stereotypes that I would never be able to get into. And so you've really got to trust that the Lord has not made an accident in making you white or Hispanic or whatever, and that the Lord knows what he's doing if he calls you to come plant this church over here. It's interesting, though. You're kind of, it seems like you're equating uh, being a part of this church and helping out with this church and living in the neighborhood. I am. Those go hand to hand. That's exactly right. So we're not seeking to be a commuter church. We're seeking very much to be a neighborhood church. We want to be in the community for the community, even though as Christians we're different from the community. And and we, I'm thoroughly convinced that you can't greatly reach a neighborhood you don't live in. And so our neighborhood is full of church buildings, full of church buildings. Every half block uh, is a church building. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, why plant another church? Well, I, I would just say drive through on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. And the parking lots are empty. The buildings are locked up. Uh, and the pe- many of the people who uh, are members of those congregations, they may have lived in a neighborhood at one time. But during the crack era or during some other era of promotion and and advancement, they moved out to the suburbs. Now they drive in. So if you come in on Sunday, uh, you'll see a lot of license plates from Virginia and D.C. They love their church. They love their neighborhoods. But they're not a part of the neighborhood Monday to Saturday. And so those congregations, to the extent that that's true, they don't have a living, viable witness for most of the week, right? And I'm just sort of saying, praise God for those churches, praise God for those congregations, praise God for their commitment to the neighborhood such as it is, but I'm looking at all my neighbors who are saturated in you know, the world without Christian witness for 90% of their life, their weekly life. And I'm just sort of saying, no, as a congregation, we actually want to be here and be neighbors. We want to live out Luke 10, the Good Samaritan. Um, story and serve the community, show mercy. Uh, we're not saviors, but we do know the Savior. 
And we want our neighbors to know the Savior. We just need to be here constantly pointing to Christ with our words and with our lives. You didn't mention this in, in the, the answer to what your calling is, but you kind of play a dual role in uh, ways that you do ministry in terms of you have your local church ministry, but you also kind of step outside of that context and you speak to your white brethren and you want to you have things you want to say to them and you speak to your black brethren in in, in the, the black lives matter movement you've had things you had that conversation with Tanahisi Coates which was kind of an, this incredible moment of like i i think a lot of people watching that were like this is weird <laughs> like like <laughs> so i felt <laughs> this is like <laughs> this is like such a weird moment of the gospel being presented as a valid viewpoint in a dis- in a discussion that was framed as like this big i don't know how to put it like two big thinkers in this movement both of you sort of equally invested in the black lives matter movement i think i mean i guess you could quibble with that but for the most part you both kind of agreed on the fundamental problems that you're addressing yeah i think we agree on the problems and the principle so if you think about black lives matter as a principle yeah. i don't think we would disagree one bit I'm not sure either of us are involved with Black Lives Matter at the organization, right? Yeah, which which would espouse some principles that that I assume both of us would go, yeah, you know, we would evaluate and wouldn't be able to endorse, and others we might. But on the principle and on the description of the problem, uh, yeah, I don't know that there's much difference between how we're looking at things. Do you feel like when you engage in those activities between, so you've got a lot going at the, the Gospel Coalition, you've got stuff going on on Twitter, you've got stuff at the Atlantic. Um, you're you're publishing in these various places. Do you find yourself fighting to keep the local church the main thing in mm. your life? Fighting mm. to keep the ministry, your me- personal ministry, in like real life, um, the main thing in your life? I do. Um, I feel called to be a pastor of a local church. That's where my heart is. I want to be in my community as much as I can be in my community, uh, and to serve it. God, in his uh, inscrutable wisdom, has allowed me to do things beyond the local church. I haven't asked for any of them. I've not prayed for speaking invitations and and things of that sort. God has just, in his providence, decided he wanted to do that. And and in his grace, decided for reasons unknown to me that he wanted to do some of that through me. And so I'm I'm struggling with uh, how to steward what God allows me to do beyond and how to also kind of live out this passion I have, and I think comes from the Lord, to be local, to be embodied, to embrace the limits of creatureliness. So there's so much seduction in in the sort of evangelical Christian world that we live in now, where conferences are you know everywhere, and and they're wonderful, but they're everywhere. And there are temptations to celebrity, and there's pride that goes in with that. And there are people who are lusting for platforms. It's best I know my own heart. I despise platforms. Uh, I'm not looking to quote build one, and and I don't I don't feel myself really to be anybody's representative other than the, the, my own family and and my local church. And yet, and yet, uh, I do. I'm a citizen. I, I feel like I have a responsibility to. And, and, a, and a privilege in this country and a right in this country to sort of speak to, to various things and uh, to engage various things. For me, not even primarily on behalf of my community, but on behalf of Christ. So there's this stunning line in Luke 21, and, and the Lord is, it's the Last Supper. He's talking about Judas's betrayal. He's talking about his own suffering and going to the cross. There's a stunning line in, in Luke 21, around verse 28, 29, where the Lord says um, to the disciples, 
He says, you guys are my friends. You stood with me in my trials. And as I've been trying to think through how to navigate, for example, all these questions around Black Lives Matter and police brutality and so on, and the competing solidarities that need to be expressed, the, the affirmation of black life and, and the grieving of the loss of life and the call for justice and the support of, of officers and the mourning of the loss of officers' lives and, 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 and how to hold those things together. It was reading that text and seeing Christ say, you stood with me, not, not with police officers and not with African-Americans or, or the disputants, in the, in the, in the, but you stood with me in my trial. You know, it becomes really clear to me, as my first pastor taught me when I, when I preached my first sermon, you preach for an audience of one, for Christ. Uh, it becomes really clear for me that the highest solidarity to express in these things is with Christ. And so whether it's just being in my local church or whether it's, you know, doing some things beyond, which I'm trying to do less of, in all of that, what keeps me sane is I'm working out my own salvation in fear and trembling. I'm, I'm working out my own discipleship. Uh, I am seeking to serve God and not man. And, and that will have me at times affirming one thing that one audience likes and another dislikes, and at times affirming another thing that one audience likes and another dislikes. That will at time have me at home and refusing things beyond, and at times have me going away from home to do things beyond. I'm trying to think this through in terms of that principle of solidarity, and solidarity most explicitly and most fundamentally with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But it is a tension. And uh, with my elders, as we pray about it and think about it, with the committee of folks who help me think through invitations and commitments, um, it's, it's a source of prayer and reflection is more art than science. Do you have like a process you go through when you get an invitation and you take it to your elders? Yeah, there's a wonderful brother named Daniel uh, who who chairs a little group of folks who uh, meet about once a quarter to pray through the invitations, to pray for those events and for the word to go forth with power and to talk with me and my wife about uh, our family, our balance, our, our things that go on there to help me think through and to remember commitments to the local church that are fundamental. Uh, and then to think about whether or not an invitation will be life-giving, whether there's something that I could uniquely contribute to or there are a thousand other people who could do it, uh, and to say no where, where no needs to be said and to say yes where a yes seems like it's right. Yeah, so it's just a little committee process that uh, Daniel chairs, and it's a great blessing to my soul. In living out your calling, what's the deepest fear that you have? Probably is that the Lord would let me live a second longer than my usefulness. Um, I don't want to outlive my usefulness. I don't want to outlive faithfulness, any of my callings. I don't want to betray the Lord uh, in some Peter-like, you know, rooster crows way. I don't want to betray my wife and our covenant together as husband and wife. Um, my father and my mom never married. I grew up watching him be unfaithful to my mom, and it's it's been a, a fear of mine from middle school that I would be in some way unfaithful. Uh, to to my wife. So you saw that and you didn't think of it as normal. You thought of it as something you don't want to do. Yeah, when you when you watch your mom cry. Yeah, and, <laughs> that makes and, sense. And when you, you, I'm the youngest of eight siblings, and my my other siblings have a different father. And when you your siblings are resenting your dad, and sometimes not not often, but I remember, you know, every blue moon that resentment would spill out toward me. And and when he has children by his his first wife, uh, who look at you 
as this illegitimate child. Um, you tend not to romanticize unfaithfulness, right? And uh, and so that was shaping me very profoundly, uh, as I said, even as a middle schooler. And so that's not something I've wanted for myself. And and knowing, and knowing, you know, lust and lustful thoughts and and those things in my own soul that need to be put to death. Yeah, that frightens me. I don't I don't want to give the enemy a toehold in that area. And then I guess, you know, if I think about my calling as a parent, um, my greatest hope is that my children would walk with the Lord uh, and serve the Lord with gladness. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing. I conversations uh, going back a couple of years with my oldest daughter who said, you know, I don't know whether I believe because, you know, I grew up in your home and I'm a PK and just, you know, or at that time to say if my faith is my own. And and so, you know, you pray uh, and you try to talk with your children through those things. And we've seen remarkable growth and commitment uh, in her life. And, and yet, you know, if, you, if we're framing this in terms of fears, you, you fear your children would not stray from the truth. And you fear in some ways, maybe I haven't done enough. You know, um, maybe I'm gone too much <laughs> doing these things. I need to be home more. So those would be the kinds of things that, in terms of my callings, would be concerns. If you could get into a time machine and go back in time and talk to yourself, your younger self, what would you tell him? You know, I think I'd go back to my younger self, uh, probably at middle school, and would say, work hard, have hope. I would share the gospel with myself. I'd uh, say believe in Christ. You became a Christian when? I became a Christian uh, in graduate school. Yeah, so I was well into my twenties by that point. Yeah, I think I, I think I'd want to go back and preach the gospel to myself, and and out of that gospel, uh, exhort myself to hope, and 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 have myself worry less about you know cool and being cool. <laughs> you know, I was cool, but I came to discover cool only lasts about a year or two after high school. And then you got bills, and, and you know, uh-huh. life begins to sort itself really, really rapidly. Right. And so I just think I would just, you know, give myself those kinds of exhortations. You've been listening to The Calling. My guest today was the B.D. Anyabwile, and he's a pastor of Anacostia River Church in southeast Washington, D.C., and one of the founders of The Front Porch. That's thefrontporch.org. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. Please do this. It helps us a lot. It's a big deal. It's not a lot of trouble, but when you do it, it, it really encourages us and it lets other people, it helps other people find us. Please do it. The Calling is produced by John Clausen and Cray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.